Coming to you live from the basement of an abandoned house in the middle of a field, it's the Derek Izzy Show. Making history his story, Derek Izzy. You're listening to The Derek Izzy Show. Welcome back to another month of historical education. This month, we delve into a true crime that will have you appreciating the life that you live and the people around you. One of the ways that I like to appreciate the people around me is with good food. Blue Apron is all about that. If you click on the link in the show notes or on DerekIzzy.com, you will get $60 off your first month's order with Blue Apron. Blue Apron is constantly expanding, but what are they? They will send you all the ingredients you need to make amazing food. They send you pictures with step-by-step instructions, and all you have to do is put it together. Average meal takes 15 to 40 minutes or so to put together. It is an excellent way to get your family together, bonding and creating good food together. Because the ingredients are all pre-proportioned, there's a minimal amount of waste, And they have options for every diet. If you're vegetarian, if you're diabetic, if you're on a low-calorie diet, they can cater to all this. Just go to the link on DerekIzzy.com, click on the Blue Apron link, get your $60 off. That is just a thank you for being a listener to The Derek Izzy Show. Today's podcast is about Harmon Whaley. At age 52, Harmon Whaley found himself working at a timber mill that was owned by the Weyerhaeuser Company. Weyerhaeuser is one of the biggest companies in the timber industry. At the time, was one of the largest employers in the Northwest, and he had a good job there. Excellent pay, excellent benefits, rewarded for a hard day's work. What you may not know about Harmon Whaley is just how he got this job working for Weyerhaeuser. Back in the 1920s and 30s, kidnapping was big business. It was starting to become fairly common to read the headlines of a local newspaper and see that there was a national case on the front page. Wealthy and industrious families coming from mansions with all the money in the world. Kidnappers had figured out that if you take their kids, you can make a lot of money by asking for a ransom. Back on May 25th, 1935, we're in Tacoma, Washington. A young boy, nine years old. The boy was let out of school a little bit early this day. Coming from a rich family, he would normally be transported home from school by the family's chauffeur. But today, since he left early, he decided to walk to a nearby school to meet his sister, who was not let out early. Now he's at his sister's school, there's no chauffeur, 
The sister's in school. He decides to walk home on his own. This nine-year-old takes an overgrown path, comes out onto Burrow Road, where there are two men sitting in a 1927 Buick. One of the men gets out and approaches the boy. He asks the boy for directions. As the boy tries to respond, the man grabs him, rushes over to the Buick, puts him inside, and the men take off. Our nine-year-old is thrown into the back seat with a blanket to cover him up. The two men had been plotting this crime for some time, but that day just happened to work in their favor with the nine-year-old being released from school early. For this nine-year-old came from a very wealthy family. After kidnapping this child, the two men drove around town for hours. They weren't quite sure what to do with the boy until they could receive a ransom. They had dug ditches and holes in the ground, chained him up, stored him underground for a while. They put him in a pit, eventually taking him to a rented house. At that house, he was kept in a closet. That house was located in Washington, in Spokane. You can actually see the house, for it still stands to this day. The kidnappers had actually rented the house at 1509 West 11th Street for $28 a month. Back in 1935, $28 a month would equate to about $525 a month in today's money. But in that neighborhood, if you tried to rent a house for $525 a month, well, you couldn't. I was online looking at rentals in the area and just took a look at that house to see what it looked like today. And there are, there are some rentals in the area, but you are not going to find one that's less than $1,000 a month, just to give you a little bit of an idea how much $28 a month got you back in those days. That also gives you an idea of how much money the $200,000 was that the kidnappers asked for in ransom money. But it turns out $200,000 was doable for this wealthy family. It is alleged that while he was being held, the young boy asked his captors, Say, mister, you're not going to throw me in the river and drown me, are you? To which one of the kidnappers replied, Don't worry, kid. You're too valuable to throw away. And with that, the kidnappers wrote a letter to the boy's family. This letter, as published in the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, goes on to say, To whom it may concern. And it is there where they list the 21 demands in exchange for the boy. Number one, $200,000 in cash. Number two, $100,000 in $20 bills. Number three, $50,000 in $10 bills. Number four, $50,000 in $5 bills. Number five, all of this money must be in Federal Reserve notes and unmarked. Number six, you are not to take the numbers of these bills. If they are taken and the bills are marked, it will be all off. Number seven, you are not to notify police. Department of Justice, or any private detective agency. Number eight, if you do, it will be all off. 
Number nine, keep it out of the papers. Number 10, this is business. Be businesslike. Number 11, you have got five days to raise the money. Better have it. Number 12, in five days or as soon as you have the money, advertise in the Seattle Post-Intelligencer personal column. Say, we are ready and sign it, Percy Minnie. Number 13. Remember, the money will be gone over before the release, so don't mark it. Number 14. The police can't catch us, so be very, very careful to follow the rules. Number 15. These bills must have been in circulation. Be careful. Number 16. Remember and don't try to slip any gold-certified notes on us. Number 17. You will be notified where to go when the time comes. Be sure there is no one following you as you will be watched from the time you leave. Number 18. We won't be sitting behind any mailboxes either. Number 19. Just follow the rules. We will get along fine. Don't follow them and it will be sorrowful for you, not for us. Number 20. Any questions? Ask them in the personal column, signed, same as above. Number 21. Remember to follow the rules, all of them. A slip on your part will be just too bad for someone else. The letter concludes. We know what we are doing. We have it all planned. It has been planned for three years. In the meantime, we have looked for places where we might slip and have found none. We are educated, and pride says we are fairly intelligent. So if you just stop and reason for a minute, you'll see that it is best to follow our rules. We don't want to hurt anyone if we can get out of it. So if you just follow the rules as they are laid down by us, you will have the one you love back home in a week's time. If you care about them, $200 worth. So just remember, a slip on your part is a slit by us. Don't do it. The letter is signed, Egoist. Of course, the family notified the police. Authorities were called in. The FBI was involved. And the hunt was on. You can imagine a case like this garnered a lot of press. Even though the ransom letter demanded that the family keep the press out of it, there was nothing they could do. The press stormed the mansion of the family. But the ransom was about to be paid. On Tuesday, May 28, 1935, an ad was placed in the paper's classified section. We are ready. Percy Minnie. The following day, the family received a letter from the kidnappers. The instructions said to register at 7 o'clock at the Ambassador Hotel on Union Street in Seattle under the name John Paul Jones and await further instructions. Enclosed with this letter was a handwritten note from the kidnapped child stating that he was safe. The father complied with the kidnappers' demands. At 9.45 p.m. that night, 
A taxi driver delivered a letter to the Ambassador Hotel. The letter told the father to drive to South Renton Avenue and 62nd Avenue South in the Rainier Valley with the money. Look for a stake with a white cloth attached to the right side of the road. The father did just that. He found the stake, and underneath the cloth, he found a note in a tin can with instructions telling him to drive straight for 700 feet and find another white cloth. Park your car there. Leave the engine running with the lights on. The father followed these instructions. But nothing happened. He stayed there for three hours. But still, nothing happened. He returned back to Seattle, confused and unsure of what to do next. Thursday morning the next day, he receives an anonymous telephone call at the hotel asking why he failed to follow the instructions. The father explained that he did follow the instructions, but he found no note at the second area. The kidnappers instructed him to wait. Finally, a couple hours later, he receives another phone call at the hotel. These instructions say to drive the money to 1105 East Madison Street and look for a tin can. Directly inside the gate, on the right-hand side, there would be a note inside this tin can with further instructions. The father followed these instructions. There were further notes left in tin cans, giving him instructions on where to drive and what to do. Eventually, he came to the last one where the instructions said to leave the money in the front seat, leave the vehicle running, leave the inside light on, and the driver's door open. Exit your car and walk down the road towards the highway. If you comply with these orders, your son will be released within 30 hours. The father complied with these wishes. After exiting the vehicle, he got about 100 yards down the road where he heard noises. He saw somebody coming from the bushes, hopping into his car and taking off. The father walked back to the highway and was able to catch a ride home. Several days later, on Saturday, June 1st, the kidnappers decide to release the child. It was a rainy day. He was told to walk down the road to a nearby shack and then wait to be rescued. After walking down the road in the rain for six miles, this nine-year-old boy finally stumbles upon a farm. He told the owner of the farm who he was. They immediately took him into the house. They fed him, bathed him, gave him some fresh clothes to wear. And then they hopped in their car and headed to deliver the boy home. One of the actual kind of comical things about this case is that along the way to delivery, they didn't actually deliver him home. They were stopped by what they thought was a policeman who told them he would deliver the boy for them and that he had been sent to get the boy. That man was not a policeman, but actually a reporter who had been following the story for the Seattle Times. So he actually took possession of the boy and delivered the boy home to his family. Now, his account of the events were that he delivered the boy to his family and the family pushed him in his face 
to get rid of him so they could just cherish their son. I was unable to verify that the other parties involved actually witnessed that, but the man claims that it happened. So now the boy was safely delivered to his family, but the kidnappers are still on the loose. And now they're $200,000 richer. Despite the kidnappers' instructions, the FBI made sure they marked these bills. They had serial numbers, and they had people searching for these bills all over the country. Now, even though the kidnapping took place in the state of Washington, during the kidnapping, they had actually transported the child across the state line. When you do that, that makes the kidnapping a federal crime, which made things a lot worse for the kidnappers. This direct involvement of the FBI in our federal crime was about to lead to the downfall of our kidnappers. On June 2nd, a $20 bill with one of the known serial numbers was used to purchase a train ticket to Salt Lake City. The investigation was on. The agents in the FBI were headed to Salt Lake City where they discovered Margaret Whaley and they arrested her. So we have Salt Lake City. Almost a year after the kidnapping, kidnapper number two, William Daynard, he was arrested in Butte, Montana after using marked bills. Margaret Whaley, being arrested in Salt Lake City, quickly turned on her husband, Harmon Whaley. Harmon Whaley was arrested. Now they had the three kidnappers in custody. Crime solved. William Daynard and Harmon Whaley both pled guilty. Margaret pleaded not guilty. Margaret initially stated she knew nothing about the kidnapping, and her husband Harmon said the same thing, but Margaret ended up being found guilty and received concurrent 20-year sentences. Harmon Whaley received concurrent 45-year sentences and served part of his time in Alcatraz, and eventually everyone was released from prison. What makes this case interesting is that when initially caught, Harmon said that he knew nothing about the kidnapping. When he was confronted with the evidence, he started giving more information. The story came out that he and Margaret had gotten married in Salt Lake City. They had lived there. They lived in New Jersey. They lived in Washington. They were basically living on welfare, moving all over the country, while Harmon was honing his skills in burglary. Harmon Whaley met William Daynard in Salt Lake City, and that was where they ended up deciding to go to Spokane and hatching a plan to kidnap George Warehouser. Finally, after serving out his sentence, he had been writing George from prison. Harmon Whaley, at age 52, was finally released from prison. Keeping in touch with George all those years, George offered him a job at one of the Warehouser lumber mills. The farm that George stumbled upon, the family that rescued him, Mr. Warehouser, was so grateful that he gave that farmer lifetime employment at one of the lumber mills, as well as a financial reward that was large enough to purchase several acres of land and build a brand new house. Margaret Whaley ended up being released 
from prison, 1948, having served two-thirds of her sentence. After her release, she divorced Harmon Whaley, went back to her maiden name. She moved to Ohio and eventually got a job working at the American Electric Power Company. She would later return to Salt Lake City, where she died in 1989. Harmon Whaley ended up dying in 1984 in Salem, Oregon. Oregon was where the mill was located, where he was given a job by the boy that he kidnapped in 1935. After being kidnapped, George went on to graduate from Yale University and to work for the Weyerhaeuser Company, starting at the ground and working his way up. Mill Foreman, general manager, took over control of the company in 1966. The company continued to grow until George finally retired in 1999. From kidnapper to employee, all is forgiven in this crazy story from 1935 because now you know the rest of the story. Good day. Good day.